You're listening to JSCN, radio for the Jewish small communities. There's a kindly gentleman who sits not that far away from me in synagogue. His name is Sam. He always asks about me and my wife and I always make sure to wish him Shabbat Shalom. He rarely speaks about himself, but I know from other people that Sam survived three or maybe four concentration camps. And people are also keen to tell me, hey, you know he's one of the Windermere boys, don't you? The boys was a group of 300 boys and girls who ended up in Prague and had been airlifted out as refugees at the end of the war. They were taken to Windermere to recover, and from there they would go on to build new lives. But recently, I found out how the history of that time and the physical evidence of their existence had almost been eradicated forever. Trevor Avery had an interest in the wartime history of Windermere, but initially for a completely different reason, until a chance encounter piqued his interest. Now, for over 10 years, he's made it his mission to uncover that history and tell the story of the Windermere Boys. I'm Ed Horwich, and this is Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life. 2005, I organised an exhibition in Kendall. It was to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. I decided to put an exhibition on what was, a, during the war, the largest single-span building in Europe, which is extraordinary, which was built on the shores of Windermere against enormous opposition from Friends of the Lady Street. And it was to build flying boats, to build the Short Sunderland. The Short Sunderland uh, it was anti-U-boat, long-range reconnaissance aircraft, flying boats, built in Rochester, where Short's brothers were based. When war was declared, of course, Rochester was on Bomb Alley. So when Europe was occupied, Western Europe occupied, the Rochester factory was indeed bombed. The decision was made by the Ministry of Air Production, Government and Shorts to carry out a dispersal project, which was to build them somewhere else um, because they desperately needed these flying boats. And the submarines at the time, they were unto-say boats. Basically, they, they travelled on the surface an awful lot and only went underwater occasionally for attack or to hide. They couldn't stay underwater very long. And the job of the Sunderland was to fly huge radiuses for hours at a time. And their job really was to keep the U-boat underwater. So they built a factory in Belfast, Bombardier, still building aircraft there. They built a factory in Dumbarton and a factory in Windermere. The Windermere connection came from the First World War, which a chap named John Lancaster Parker, he had learned to fly hydroaeroplanes in the First World War with Edward Wakefield on Windermere, and he had this connection. Windermere would be perfect. It'd be a secret factory. We can hide all the plans and the blueprints, all the shorts factories so for all the experimental aeroplanes could be hidden in Windermere. And the prevailing wind on Windermere is up and down the lake, which means it was great for these enormous beasts to take off. The problem was they didn't have enough accommodation. Then, as now, accommodation is at a premium for people to live in the Lake District. So they had to build a housing scheme, which was Calgarth Estate. Uh, this was built roughly half a mile from where the factory was. 200 families and 300 workers who came to work at the factory without their families. 
It had a school, it had shops, it had all facilities. It was known locally as Chinatown because it was one of the first places in the Lake District that had electric lighting. And Lake District at that time didn't, it was all gas lighting, coal gas. They're also known, because they had indoor toilets and central heating in the form of back boilers, known short palaces because accommodation of lakes wasn't great at that time. 60% they were drawing water from a well at the bottom of the garden and the toilet was outside a hole in the ground. But they had to build Calgarth Estate really well because although we, we all adore the Lake District now, at that time it was, it was the back of beyond. And to tempt the workers from Rochester to move to the Lake District, they had to provide them with very good housing because they just didn't want to come. So the, the housing scheme was built against enormous opposition from the friends of the Lake District. It is almost like it's an healing comedy, but it's also a bit of a tragedy because in the end, the man from the ministry in frustration says, look, do you want to help the war effort or do you want jackboots marching across the Lake District? The factory was built, the houses were built, but on the strictest of understandings, that the moment the war was over, the factory would be taken away and the, the houses would be levelled and it would return back to the pasture land that it was. It built from scratch, which is in incredible, in 18 months or two years, over 30 full-size aircraft. Half the workforce were guys who were skilled aircraft workers and they trained up local guys. And not only local guys, but also for the first time, women in the Lake District were well-paid engineering work. They fled from the shops and the houses, the big houses around to get skilled work. The big hotels and houses around weren't particularly enamored by the factory because they lost all their staff. This is all relevant for what I'll come to later. Over 30 aircraft, it repaired oh, well over 60. These are the battle damaged ones. We spoke to many, many of the workers and families there. Bill Harrison in particular said we were young and it was great. But he said when the battle damage ones started to arrive, we were aware of the war going on. We were aware of Barrow being bombed. It was all going on elsewhere. When the battle damage ones came, he said we, it may have appeared we were quite old fashioned, but we didn't want the young girls working on these. Because if you see what happens to an aircraft when it's been shot up, and to the people in it. It's not, a, it's not a great sight. So we had to clean them out as they floated on Windermere before we brought them ashore to be repaired. And they said that's when we realised there was a war going on. It brought it brutally home to us. When the war was over, um, there was much dispute about what to do with the factory. There was a movement from the local MP and others to keep it because it was highly skilled work and well paid. And the Lake District, you would argue then as now, is short of that kind of work. And Calgarth Estates, there was a huge campaign by the community to keep it for houses. A lot of servicemen didn't have homes to come back to were being placed there. A lot of families in the area were wanting to move there because their accommodation was, was so basic. But the friends of the Lake District were determined to push ahead and hold the government to account. August 1945, 300 children and young people arrived directly from Prague, directly from Theresienstadt. They arrived at Crosby on Eden Airfield in Carlisle and then they were brought to Calgarth Estate to begin a period of recuperation. There is a film drama coming out early next year made by BBC, Warner Brothers, Wall to Wall, 
It tells the story of these children. It tells their story of their time in Windermere, how they connected with the local community and how they began their recovery with teams of psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, all on hand. It was a huge effort. People had arrived. Um, Leonard Montefiore was the prime mover behind this and the and Central British Fund. He had said in May 45, from Paris, where he'd been seeing concentration camp survivors, I think Britain should accept Holocaust survivors after the war. For two reasons. One, for compassionate grounds, obviously. The second reason, so that in the future, the British people can see why they fought the war. There'd be no better evidence than to have survivors living amongst them. I don't think Montefiore would have foreseen quite how pertinent he was, but that's, they were two of the primary motivations. So these children arrived at Calgarth. We have lots of testimonies from, from them. We have lots of testimonies from the locals who remembered them. When I stumbled across this story in 2005, an old gentleman came into this exhibition that I'd put on which I thought was about flying boats at the factory. And he said to me, he pointed at a map we had of Calgarth Estates, and there were, we had 2,000 people, a lot of ex-workers still alive at the time. And he pointed out who lived in which house and what they did. And then he just, talked, he just mentioned to me in a hushed voice, of course you know, this is where the children from Auschwitz came. And I said, what? And he said, the children from Auschwitz. I remember them. There was a group of them, he said, they were, because the, the houses on the estate would open outwards, he said they, a group of them would just open the door, come in, and he said they, were, they just chatted, they were full of life. They just came in, and he said, my, my parents, as he put it, at the time, they became a focus uh, in many ways for children. They couldn't speak, initially they couldn't speak English, we couldn't speak Polish, but we got on. He said it was quite remarkable. A lot of research has been done for, for the film and, and more stuff has been uncovered recently, enormous amounts of stuff. One of them by a, an art therapist. She was connected to the Freud family. She herself had escaped the Nazis in, in the 30s with her family. She had worked with traumatised children from the Blitz in London, helping them to recover. They brought her up to Windermere. Beyond our wildest dreams, we've been working on this for 12, 13 years, and suddenly somebody, through research, uncovered an unpublished book in the United States Library of Congress, a file. And in this file, the unpublished book was called Rock the Cradle. And it was her description, 200 pages, of life at the Windermere reception camp. So we had, we'd had the boys' stories, we had the local stories, and we suddenly had this bridge. We had this person who told, she arrived ahead of, of the team to prepare for the children coming, for the, for the boys and the girls to come. She said, we had meetings with the locals to introduce ourselves. They were a working class British community of industrial workers. We had to say to them, because they were suddenly placed amongst them, the caring team, they were placed amongst them. They said, uh, please bear with us. We're here to help these young people who are arriving in a few days' time. We are strangers to you, but please bear with us. 
and please bear with the children when they arrived. We don't know how they're going to be. This was unprecedented to have survivors of the Holocaust en masse, a large group coming. One reason why they brought them to Windermere was there, was, there were options to take them to London, to take them to Manchester, to take them to cities, but Lennon Montefiore and the committee decided that the boys and the children needed rest and recuperation away from the limelight, away from publicity. The BBC wanted to cover their arrival, um, Pathé News wanted to, others because this was a big story, it was a growing story, but Montefiore and the team said we'd rather you didn't publicise them. But Lennon Montefiore said we're going to put a publicity screen around them, they need to rest, they need to recover. Marie Penneth, the art therapist, she describes how uh, she said to the locals, please bear with us, they could be enormously trouble, we don't know ourselves. So the day arrived and she describes the camp, she describes people milling around outside in the middle of the Lake District, chatting, playing, all the children. Suddenly she said, our children emerged. So they'd arrived the night before, it was around about noon, and suddenly the doors burst open and the boys and girls emerged onto Calgary Estate. She said, this is where we all took a deep breath. What's going to happen? And she said, we needn't have worried. Immediately laughter and jokes and humour were struck up between the two communities. We saw the locals, the boys would talk about the bikes disappearing. So the locals having got fed up of bikes being taken for a little ride by the boys, arrived with a big truck with the back open and said, these are bikes, you can take them. You don't need to steal them anymore. Montefiore and the guys had said, if there's any naughtiness, don't challenge them. Don't, don't confront them, tell us and we'll deal with it. We know that some of the very, very small children came. These were aged, because the youngest was three years old. The oldest around about eight. Uh, unlike Eric and the boys who were all teenagers and older, these were very small children. The suspicion is that they were all, they were discovered interagent staff, whereas all our boys and girls had been in camps everywhere, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, you name it, they, there's a link to one of these horrendous camps. These little children have spent most of the time in Theresienstadt, where the boys, after death marches and journeys, the boys fetched up in Theresienstadt. These children had been there for two or three years, uh, their parents had disappeared. It's thought that they were Michelin children, that the Nazis didn't quite know what to do with it. They had debates about uh, their mothers were Jewish and their fathers were Aryan. These little children um, had been kept locked up in a room in Theresienstadt. So when the women who were looking after them went out to work, they were locked in the room and were left all day to their own devices. Um, at the end of the day, the women would come back, open the room and provide some care for these children. When these women in their turn were deported to Auschwitz, which they were fairly regularly, the next group of women who arrived would continue their work and look after their children, even though they weren't theirs. And by then, who these children were was beginning to be lost in the midst of time. They'd be given new names by the Nazis, by the Germans, etc. So, so these children had a, had a very, very strange uh, time of it. When they came to Calgarth, we met with one of the nurses who looked after them. 
Um, she was from Glasgow. She was a young girl, and she was 19, and she, want, she worked for UNRWA, and she wanted to go and help people. She wasn't Jewish, but she wanted to go and help camp survivors in Europe. But her father and the authorities thought it was too dangerous to go over there immediately after the war. So they sent her to Calgarth to look after these small children. Um, bless her, she, we met her a few years ago, before she, and she said they were a horror to, to deal with. She said they, they, unlike Lord of the Flies, if anybody knows the film, when society collapses, children are supposed to fight with each other, you know, without any guidance. It was, it was doggy dog when children. It's quite different in this, this, sample, this example. They formed an incredibly close bond they had. Uh, they talked to each other in a civil way, played with each other, but you imagine a three or four year old traumatized child any adult who tried to talk to them, they swore at them in German and Czech, and they spat at them. Anybody who was grown up an adult, they didn't want to know them. She said, we tried to take them off Calgarth Estate once into Windermere, and it was, it was just impossible. They ran riot. They climbed on cars, up lampposts. They were just, they were uncontrollable, so we took them back to Calgarth. And preparations were made very quickly to get them uh, into a, um, an orphanage in the south of England. Even then, she had to take them down, six of them, on a railway. The old compartments, train compartments, she took them down on one of those, onto Windermere, down to London. But thankfully, there was a British Army officer who was on the train and looked into a compartment and could see children hanging from the luggage racks, hanging from the windows, trying to open doors. And he put his head in and said to her, can I help you? She said, oh, please do. So he closed the door and she said, he traveled with me all the way to London, thankfully, so we could keep control of them. The happy ending to the story is, a report was written by Anna Freud when they went to Bulldog Banks, and at first they were pretty, they were like that, but within a very, very few months, they had, with love and with care and attention, a lot of that behaviour had, had dissipated very, very quickly. They were very needy. There was still a legacy of it, but it weren't, they weren't lost causes by any means. And it, they were surprised how quickly they adapted. So we have uh, Calgar State, we have, we have the children, we have our boys there. So where does Treblinka fit into this? I took a decision very early on. I, I began to know the boys Maya, I'd met Maya Hirsch four or five times and I was standing in Calgarth and Maya looked at me and he said, you're not a journalist, are you? And I said, no, I'm not Maya. And he said, oh, you can ask me anything then. Only once did I ask him something which it upset him. He put the phone down. Two weeks later, he rang back, I'm really, really sorry. It was something fairly innocuous. And he rang me back two weeks later, just said, I'm sorry, he said, psychologically, I don't like talking at night time. When he said, you can ask me anything you want, I, di I didn't. <laughs> it would come out anyway. Jack Eisenberg, another one, I said to Jack, I'm going to start visiting places where you guys came from. And he said, well, why are you bothering? There's nothing there. <laughs> I said, but I want to go anyway. So I began to make journeys. There are places on the map in Poland which I would never have heard of, and I don't think people would have heard of until I began this work. And they're all places, some were large cities like Warsaw, Lodge or Łódź. Some are tiny little towns and villages where our boys emerged from in the ghettos. 
And the reception I got in these places very much varies. It varies now as it did then. Sometimes they're very immensely helpful and welcome you. Others, you say, where was the Jewish community? And they say, what Jewish community? It's very, very variable. My private suspicion is it depends on the local priest. So if the priest is very proactive, the community follows him. If they're not, they tend not to be. And in the course of this, I began to visit Auschwitz. I went to Ravensbrück recently. Camp, I only sort of visit camps that have a link to the boys and the girls that came. I've been to Theresienstadt. And whilst I was in Warsaw, because some of the boys were from, from around that area, I was with a friend of mine and he said, um, I knew by then that a lot of the boys' families, some had, had been murdered in Auschwitz, quite a number had been murdered in Treblinka. So, well, I don't want to visit all the extermination camps, but I would like to go because the boys said they couldn't go to these places. So I thought, well, I'm going to go and see these places. So a couple of years ago, I went to Treblinka. As all of them do, it affected me immensely deeply. What was curious about Treblinka was there was an exhibition on in Treblinka about very, very first archaeological survey of a death camp. And the archaeologist was somebody called Caroline Sturdy Coles, and she was British, and she was from the University of Staffordshire on Stoke-on-Trent. And I thought, how does an archaeology from, from Stoke-on-Trent come to be given permission to do the archaeology at Treblinka? So I contacted Caroline and I said, um, can I come and meet you? Would you work with us? Because we had had a plan for a long time to do some archaeology of Calgarth Estate, which had been taken down, levelled. When people visit Calgarth, there are only green fields and a, and a secondary school. You can't see the estate. Caroline is quite remarkable. She's only 34. She's a forensic archaeologist. So she'd worked with Saddleworth Moore, looking for the children on Saddleworth. She'd simply written as part of a PhD to the authorities in Poland saying, has anybody ever done any excavation work on any, on any death camps? And she said it'd be the whirlwind. They said, well, why don't you come and do it? The chief rabbi of, in Warsaw and Poland said, well, yeah, you can do it. So she went to Treblinka and she was the one that uncovered far more. The whole story of Treblinka was people were fooled into going. They even had a fake station when they arrived with a clock, with flower boxes. You know, it was a real... The, the Treblinka that station that you see on the Claude Landsman film is Treblinka Village Station. That was demolished a year ago under cover of night, and it shouldn't have been. They were trying to protect it, but it was flattened by somebody. But the trains would arrive at that station, which is used in all the publicity, they were decoupled and taken along a siding into a forest, which is where Treblinka death camp was, with a faked-up station. And its only role was extermination. But what she'd uncovered at the, at the gas chambers were tiles, tiles with Stars of David on. The gas chambers themselves, they thought originally they'd been pretty rudimentary, that people had gone off the train and be taken along this route, which was the Himmelweg, and then when they emerged, it, they thought it was just a plain building, then they were whipped and beaten to go inside. But from her evidence, it was clearly made to look like a, could have been a synagogue, a, a, a place of worship. Even to the last minute, the, the, the duplicity went on. And she was the first one to uncover this. 
The thing with Treblinka was, though, when she was working there, nearby, about a mile away, there was a Polish uh, concentration camp, which was a work camp, purely for Poles, to work at the nearby quarry. And she did some work there. When she was working on this concentration camp, which was Polish only, she had a lot of interest from the locals living there. Have you found anything? What have you found? This, that and the other. And she won't mind me saying that when she worked on the extermination camp part of it, not a bit of interest. The comment that she did have, why are you doing this here? This was just a potato patch. And she said it was really noticeable. Now, I only say this because um, you can imagine in this day and age, uh, she is only a young woman, that you, Treblinka was from its very, very... Uh, when, it, when it was finished, when it was ended, the, the Nazis planted trees there, they levelled it, they put a woodman's cut there, they, they tried to make it look like, like nothing had happened, that it was just a, a farm. And there's always been denial, Holocaust denial has always... Has always Treblinka was probably the first to say never, nothing happened here. She's borne the brunt, I can't tell you, of an enormous amount of abuse globally for the work she did at Treblinka. It's people have tried to, from, its, from the end of its days at Treblinka, people have tried to twist history. They've tried to change it, they've tried to bury it, tried, all sorts of things gone on there. Calgarth by no means has, has a legacy of Treblinka, and I wouldn't claim it for one minute. But it was very interesting that when the Friends of the Lake District said, uh, we want Calgarth removing, taking back, when Caroline came to do the archaeology, she said it was, Calgarth Estate was the most completely removed Second World War settlement she'd ever come across. They had really, we didn't know whether they'd left foundations of walls, or you have to dig really down to get to the drains. I say the story because when I started this in 2005 to do the Calgarth Estate story about the boys, locally I couldn't find anybody. Do you remember the boys coming? No. Does anybody know anything about these children who came? No. When I went to the Lake School, which stands on the site of the estate, I literally teachers were standing on this, this, this estate was still standing in the early 60s. By now, I started in the mid-2000s. Teacher, do you know anything about a, a housing scheme that stood here? Never heard of it. Anything about people who lived here? No. How quickly history sort of disappeared. And a couple of the boys have, have, have said, you know, without me getting involved. Uh, Martin Gilbert had done the boys' book. And the boys do talk about Windermere in in journals going back 50 years. And the boys within themselves had happy memories. They knew what had gone on in Windermere, but, but they kept it within themselves. And until I really dug deep in locals who'd actually worked there, it had been kind of a bit like Treblinka, the traces, because the Friends of the Lake District had been so determined that this factory, the industry, the estate, should be gone completely and should be levelled and returned to pastoral land. The power of the words with the romanticism very nearly wiped out that whole history and it happened very, very quickly. Alan King is a chap who works at National Trust in the south of England. He'd done a lot of work on the factory. He'd happened to have the factory manager come in with a bag of photographs and said, would you like these? 
I've thrown the plates out. This is many years. And Alan said, well, what is it? It's a factory there. So Caroline's involvement with us was valuable on so many levels, not least that when she came to do the work in the summer, she brought a lot of students with her to help with the dig. And we've identified, we're very lucky we found one of the hostels that the boys stayed in. When we dug down with test pits, we found the drainage, did find a lot of items. It was clearly a place where children had stayed. We can't say for certain whether these were linked to the boys' objects, because the boys came with nothing. But in this hostel, there seemed to be lots of small children. We found lots of items. The first thing that we dug out, which I thought was really poetic, was a child's toy unicorn. We found clearly a boy's little pen knife. We found keys, we found this. It had been spread over a large area. I was going to bring some in to show you today, <laughs> but literally four days ago, I had to bundle all these items up and send them down. The BBC are making a programme. It's Digging for Britain with Alice Roberts. So they're going to be filmed in a studio with Caroline to tell the story of the estate. She's now going to come back for the next three years to carry on doing more work there. But while she was there with the students, People have said to me, why are you doing archaeology here? It's not Roman, it's not ancient history. But Carolyn being a forensic archaeologist, the equipment she's got, the scan, which is, I think is really interesting, this equipment that she used can penetrate tarmac, brick, all sorts of things to a depth of 17 metres, which was great for us because the first few metres had been completely eradicated and stuff emerged below that. So she was using Israeli high-tech equipment for deep penetration. But she'd never met. She's an advisor on the government's Holocaust Memorial Foundation, but she'd never met any Holocaust survivors, let alone spend time. And I said to Eric earlier that we had Sam Laskier and Ike Alterman came. And now you have this team of archaeology students, and I don't think there was one of them who wasn't crying within 10 minutes of Ike and Sam turning up. I think Caroline's pretty tough, but even she was moved by seeing the two boys come, telling their stories about how, how, what it was like to be there. They brought this archaeology alive. He said, it's really rare. We looked at Calgarth Estate as being a generic wartime housing scheme. We call them hostels. We call them wartime houses. With Ike, he said, no, we called where we stayed chalets. And then they said, well, these were where the houses are. I don't bother about the houses. Where are the cottages? They saw it as chalets and cottages, not wartime workers' housing scheme. It gives a completely different feel, and it helped Carolyn, and it helped all the students who were involved. And we got lots of comments afterwards, and they said it's the most moving and life-changing thing they've ever been involved in. The link with Treblinka, I don't know if, who saw Who Do You Think You Are last year with Robert Rinder, Judge yes. Rinder, yeah. Judge Rinder. Rinder, yeah. And he came to the Lake District. When they were making his film, they'd got to the part where we need to visit a, a, a camp. Morris, his grandfather, is one of the Windermere guys, boys who came. And I said to him, well, don't do the Auschwitz. There's more, there's more to the Holocaust than just Auschwitz. Uh, and I told them about Treblinka. So actually, they took Robert. So we've got a full program about Treblinka coming up, how to trace your families that were there. It's not an easy visit, but it, it's the link between them. Our boys lost a lot of their families there. But also it's this how history can be manipulated and lost very, very quickly.
I'll sort of come to a, a slight end. Um, I gave a talk, just as Treblinka was a denier target, I gave a talk about 10 years ago when I started doing the project in Calgarth. A room like this, and it was full, and in the middle of the room I said, about the boys came, they came to Windermere, they came to Galgarth, and a gentleman stood up from the middle and put his hand up and he said, this never happened, they were never here. I said, who wasn't? These boys, they were never here. I could tell you that. And at that time, I was completely unprepared for that. Recently, Tim Farron, who is, is our Member of Parliament, he was President of Lib Dems, gave a talk at conference. Conference talk was on and I was working in the office, an email popped into my inbox and it said, just said, Tim Farron, are you the person in charge of this project about these boys coming, these children? I think it's wonderful, I think it's wonderful that they came and, and we provided a home for them. But you know, like I do, that Auschwitz was a holiday camp, that there were real saunas and that nobody was gassed there. We recently had um, an SS sticker posted on our board outside in Windermere. As our profile goes up, uh, we've, we've been mentioning Stormfront, that we're part of international Jewish conspiracy, and it's this attempt to diminish and change history. I would never have thought that Calgarth Estate and the story we had there in Windermere, the Lake District, would be prone to the same pressures as Treblinka and Auschwitz. The boys' story in Windermere does open up opportunities for us to teach about the Holocaust in ways that other schools and locations can't. And that includes Treblinka and Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Ravensbrück. But clearly what we face now, which I, I hand on heart wouldn't have envisaged 15 years ago, is the growth. That when, when you find your work being challenged as being not true, that form of denial, it's hard to stomach. But those of us in this field, it's duty bound on all of us to work with each other and share what we have. But our work will carry on. I interviewed both Jack Eisenberg and Maya Hirsch for local radio a few years ago. They spoke to me about their stories of survival during the Holocaust, but I didn't know that both of them was each a member of the boys as well. The outcome of Trevor Avery's work is the Lake District Holocaust Project. It's about to undergo a massive expansion because of the number of visitors. But you can find out more about the project and how to visit the exhibition either by googling Lake District Holocaust Project or by going to the Jewish Small Communities website where you'll also find details about that project and other Holocaust projects across the country. Trevor Avery was recorded at Leeds Limud and you can hear more Limud recordings in future episodes of Jewish Talk. And Jewish Talk, well, we'd love your help to help grow our audience. Please do write about us on your favourite social media and get your friends and family to listen. It's easy. Just go to the JSCN website or iTunes or Spotify or you can ask Alexa, play podcast JSCN Jewish Talk. I'm Ed Horwich and this has been Jewish Talk, the podcast for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life. And it's all made possible by the National Lottery Community Fund. Join us next time for another episode.